well, I can't remember the first time I learned about sexual exploitation. It was a few years ago. But I do remember the first time I felt emotion about knowing that over 24,000 women and girls in the Chicagoland area are exploited every year. I remember how stunned I was um, to learn that Chicago is actually a hub for sexual exploitation, and it has been for a very long time. Throughout the history of Chicago, even in the early 1800s, um, Chicago, like most cities, had a part of the city that had brothels and places where um, prostitution and which is really exploitation is um, was happening and ran as businesses and were accepted as part of the city. They were openly run. They were obvious to everyone. Now, the definition of sex trafficking is when someone benefits from using force, fraud, or coercion to control another person for the purpose of them engaging in commercial sex against their will. Traffickers use violence. They use threats, deception, debt bondage, and other manipulative tactics to trap victims in horrific situations. Trafficking victims experience the loss of freedom and live lives that are vulnerable and oppressed and at risk with traumas that are unspeakable. The city of Chicago um, in the mid-1800s had um, this section called the Levy District. It was on Dearborn between 18th and 22nd Street. And what's very interesting to me is back then, um, around the early part then from the mid-1800s to then the early part of the 1900s, that um, part of the city grew uh, to the point where there were over a thousand brothels that are operating in that area. And city officials, city um, governments, the police, the aldermen, the mayor, it, they all allowed this to operate, thinking that it's going to happen, so just um, keep it in one particular area. Um, even some of the city officials um, frequented the brothels, a couple even owned brothels. Within a 10-year period um, at the beginning of the 1900s, Chicago grew from 1 million to 2 million people in in, in about 10 years, which meant that people were coming from all over the world um, to live in Chicago. People from little towns in the United States were coming to the big city to live in the city. And at that time, the, um, the brothels grew, um, opium and, um, and alcohol saloons grew, and it became a business that around um, 1911, uh, the, the revenue for prostitution and exploitation in the city of Chicago was almost $15 million. Um, Because it was open, everybody knew about it, Christians were very against what was going on and would band together to try to close down the Levy District. There were evangelists that would come to town that would preach against what was going on. There was one evangelist in the city of Chicago. His name was um, Ernest Bell, and he had a mission downtown. But at night, for years and years, for over four or five years, he would go down to the Levy District and march down Dearborn Avenue and go in front of the brothels and preach 
preach and sing and teach and um, tell um, the, any woman that he could that this was not right and they, that she didn't need to be entrapped and enslaved. In fact, the term that was used for the women who were in um, this, the brothels was white slavery. That was the common term. So he had a little pamphlet made up that said, um, Abraham Lincoln in the state was from the state of Illinois, and he put a stop to black slavery. Now it's our time to put a stop to the white slavery that is happening in Chicago and around the world. Groups formed. In 1896, the American Purity Alliance was formed, and the first address given was the traffic in girls. Now, maybe some of us think that trafficking is a new term, but it's not. It's been around for a very long time. So this went on for a while, and in about 1911, the Chicago Vice Commission published a report entitled The Social Evil in Chicago, and it got attention with the police and um, with the city officials in such a way that in 1912, laws were passed so that the levy district was put out of business and had to cease. So around 1911, the whole area down on Dearborn by 18, between 18th and 22nd Street um, was shut down, businesses were closed, buildings were burned, buildings were taken down. But however, of course, exploitation did not end, it just went underground. So today, over 24,000 women and girls, as I said, are involved in and who they are exploited every year in Chicago. The suburbs are full of men and women, boys and girls who are exploited. This is not a situation that is expressly and, and exclusive to women and girls. Um, men and boys are exploited as well. In the world, exploitation, trafficking, is a $32 billion industry with between 27 to 30 million people involved and exploited. In the United States, our revenue is somewhere around $10 billion. If a teenage girl runs away from home, typically within 48 hours, she is exploited. Girls 13 and 14 on the streets are exploited easily. Women and girls are exploited by gang members, by would-be boyfriends, given drugs by pimps, who create addictions to keep them dependent. Trafficking is the second largest illegal income in the whole world, and it's the fastest growing crime globally, second only to illegal drugs. And Chicago is one of the top 20 cities. Our international travel with our airports makes it easy to have um, women and girls brought from countries and around the country into Chicago. Thankfully, we have some legislation that has come along that prosecutes traffickers and defends and protects victims and survivors. It used to be that if a young girl or a young woman was picked up for prostitution, which we can almost always assume is exploitation, there's somebody behind her that is, that is exploiting her, usually she would get prosecuted. And now laws have changed so that she will be protected and um, and the prosecution is for the traffickers. Illinois has a great law that is, um, I think, in the last five years. Um, it's the Illinois Safe Children's Act, 
which stop criminal prosecution of victimized children. Um, And that has been a model law that other states have adopted as well. So with the number of exploited persons in our community, ought not Christians be actively addressing this problem? There are countless men and women, boys and girls, who are oppressed, who are weak, unable to help themselves, and consistently treated as less than human. With these sobering facts, it should move Christians to say, what does God want us to do? God expects his moral standard to be our priority and inform us how we relate to each other. We are responsible to do what is good and right to each other. In some cases, that may mean working through the legislative um, avenues and create good laws. We need good laws. But we all should be doing something and in some way helping to solve this problem and other problems as well of people around us who are oppressed. I want us to look at a passage in scripture that helps inform us of what we should think. What does God say for us to do to ones who are weak and vulnerable? So I'm going to look this morning at Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1 to 12, if you would like to turn there. Zechariah chapter 7, the first 12 verses. In this passage, God is giving Israel again, he has done this before, he's giving them again his moral standard for how they're to relate to one another. So let me read this. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 1 says this. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month in the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sheretzer and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts... Do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. We're picking up in the middle of the story when Israel had just come out of 70 years of captivity. They had sent a couple remnants back, and for the last two years, they had begun the work of rebuilding the temple. But before God had exiled them, they had not tended to justice and mercy. They had not had compassion or helped the oppressed. 
And now they were still neglecting the needs of the hurting around them. And God was confronting them. Your forefathers did not do this, and now you're not doing this. They had created their own system. They had devised fast that God never asked them to do. But they had created fast to commemorate their captivity and their fall, and it made them feel good, but it didn't fulfill God's plans. And now their religiosity had become a burden, and it was too much that they wanted to ask God if they could stop. So instead of answering that question, God accuses them and says, you're only doing it anyway to give a perception of being devout. The Lord said, I sent prophets to tell you what I wanted you to do, and you didn't listen to me. You stopped up your ears. You turned your back. You did everything possible so you didn't have to listen to me. Things ought to be better for the people around you. The ones who have the power to do something about the hurting and the weak and the oppressed are doing nothing. People's lives were not the way they ought to be. Zechariah gives the people four precepts for what he wants them to do. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to administer true justice, which means to tell the truth. Tell what is true. Do the right thing. Make laws that are true to the standard of God, who is truth. God hears the cry of the victimized, and he wants truth to win. We need to ask, is it right? What is right? What is right to be done? The second precept is to have mercy and compassion, and it's not simply an emotion to feel merciful or to feel compassion or to sort of feel sad that things are the way things are, but it's a loyal and very constant response that is love expressed in a way that is a commitment to one another modeled after the commitment that God has in his covenant with his people. It's the motive for action. It is relentless. It never gives up on being kind. The third precept is not to, not to oppress the vulnerable or the poor. It's the also inherent in that is to stop oppressing the vulnerable and poor. People who have a low social status or who have low power to do anything in their life to make things better should not be neglected by ones who have the power to do something. And lastly, the last precept was to not even think evil in your heart about each other. And this acts in sum, it informs the other three. It goes to the core of one's value and thinking and their heart, um, and it shapes the way we live. So these were the moral standards that God set for Israel and by which he was judging his people. This same instruction is seen both in the Old Testament and then in the New. It's from Genesis to Revelation. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, Jesus is saying, Woe to you to many people. And in this verse he says, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint and your dill and your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. 
God accuses people who are confident in their own righteousness, but behave religiously for their own reputation, and who will not submit to live according to God's word. So after reading these texts, we can't help but be drawn to evaluate our own lives, right? What are we doing with our life? Are we serving God in ways that he wants us to serve him? Are we sure that we haven't stopped up our ears and like, well, no, we don't want to hear that, Lord. We're busy. We don't want to hear it. How do we know we're not fooling our own selves and creating for ourselves a measure and a standard for devotion and what it looks like to be devoted to God when it really isn't even true to doing it God's way? What would be the equivalent today of self-imposed, self-focused rituals without true devotion to the Lord? Perhaps someone would say, well, I'm a Christ follower, but their experience is very self-focused. And you come to Jesus for what he can do for you. He needs to um, make your life better, solve your problems, make me feel good, take away anxiety in my life and make me feel good and blessed. But not willing to submit to being his ambassador to the world, to fulfill his mission on the earth. Or maybe it's someone who identifies as a Christian because your friends and family are Christian. And if you go to church and do sort of the same kind of things, then they approve and you get their affirmation and life is kind of without any difficulties. Um, And so it's really the approval of somebody else that prompts any devotion. Perhaps it's one who loves sort of just is comfortable in the Christian culture. The rituals... The rhythms of life, we like Christmas, Easter, right when they're supposed to be. We love listening to great praise music, a good sermon that's theologically sound that makes us feel intellectually stimulated is great. And we sort of like the people we're around, they're nice, Christians are nice. Or maybe someone identifies as a Christian but really mostly values the networking and the connections at church. You assess it at the very least... Business contacts have helped grow your bottom line. But do day-to-day decisions look like justice, mercy, and empowering the weak? Do you employ illegals because you can get away with paying them less? Is it easy to have your default be when you see the man on the corner who is begging again and has been there for weeks and think sort of contemptuously rather than with compassion? What about entering politics? You want to do that. Why would you do that? You wouldn't be able to earn as much in politics to help create laws that are good than you could if you were in your own business. Would you rather not talk about sexual exploitation? I mean, the thought of two- and three-year-old girls in Chicago being exploited is not something you want to hear. And the, the fact that there are teenage girls who are exploited endlessly, uh, women, mothers, who are so addicted that they're exploited by their addictions. We don't want to think about that. Men, boys who are exploited. It's just sort of too, you know, stop talking. Is it easier to have a sense of outrage and disgust at pimps and at Johns rather than understand that they deserve compassion and mercy as well? But you know, what what would that even look like? 
God accuses the Israelites and say, you're not doing what I say. You're doing what you want to do to feel devout in your own way. And I have told you how things ought to be. God's people must worship him in spirit and in truth and do what he says. We need to relate to each other how he says we're to relate. It matters in our day-to-day life how we care about one another. When people walk in the ways of of the Lord, it brings peace to each other's lives. The word to describe peace in the Old Testament is shalom. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says it this way, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fully employed. And a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So God said to Israel, how you relate to me and how you relate to others is the way things ought to be. So ask yourself, are you bringing peace to those around you and then to ones who are oppressed in our cities and in our world? So if we live out Zechariah 7 verses 9 to 10, what should we do about trafficking? Well, what we know is that we can't ignore the problem. It's not going to go away. And we can't do nothing because justice and mercy means that we have to do something. It's an action. It's not just a belief. It's an action. There has to be some kind of engagement. Now, we can't respond to every issue, right? We can't do that. But there should be some part of our life that is a place where we are bringing justice to the oppressed around us. It's not just a good idea that we'll get to. It's the way God says he wants us to live. So it's our job to pray and ask God to show us what he wants us to do. Now, there are many organizations that are starting in the Chicago area and starting that affect trafficking issues around the world. So give to them. Volunteer. Search for them on the web. Look on the Facebook page for church and see some opportunities. Learn what true exploitation is about. Talk about it. Get it out in the open. Ask God then, what practical steps do you have for me? But we need to take some kind of action. There was a time in my life a couple years ago where I was reading Matthew chapter 25, and that's the passage where Jesus says when everyone gets to heaven, he's going to evaluate our deeds, and he's going to separate the goats from the sheep. And he gives a list of what he wants his people to do. And I was reading the list, and I go, well, you know, Lord, I mean, I, I, I think I did this and this. And, but, Lord, I've never visited anybody in prison. I, I don't even know what that would look like. And so I just said, Lord, if you want me to do that, I want to do everything you want me to do. And I don't want to miss anything. So if you want to do that, if you want me to do that, just set that up and I'll say yes. And I prayed about that and prayed about that. And wouldn't you know, within about three or four months, somebody called me and said, well, I have this opportunity for you. Um, It's maybe a little off your page, but it's a ministry in a prison. And I knew right away that God had set that up. 
said yes right away, of course, because I had asked God to let me serve him in the way he said I should serve him. And I recognized that he was letting me do what he said he wanted me to do, and I was grateful. Now, it wasn't exactly my passion area. It wasn't exactly what I was equipped to do. It was a maximum security men's prison. But God never said that we only do ministry that we like. And he never said that you need a passion to obey. He said you need to help the ones who are oppressed around you. We need to do ministry the way he says, not the way we think we'll feel fulfilled. God expects his moral standard to be our priority. And how we help each other shows that. Justice in our community means responding to injustice and the broken places of lives around us. Now, it'll be different for all of us, different in capacity, different in time, in skill, in abilities, and resources. It will be different. But you know when God gives you an opportunity to take some action. God will make that clear. But we must work for peace and for thriving of people wherever we can. The lack of peace for many people and for our society at large could be profoundly affected if more Christians were proactive in doing what is right and good for each other. The Israelites were religious and devout, but they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. Maybe you need to reassess what you are doing and to see if it fits Into what God said you're to do. Are you doing things that are more self-focused? You get something out of it. Rather than pouring out your life. And sacrificing your time and who you are to do what God says. The Israelites. um, God told the Israelites to listen and to obey him. And to take care of their fellow man. And he says the very same thing to us. So, does it matter? What if, what if more laws could be passed? What if new homes could be opened that would be residential programs for exploited victims and so that they could be healed? What if relationships could be built? Men and women could come to Christ. Discipleship could happen. Maybe the 24,000 in Chicago or the 30,000 around the world would hear more and more that God loves them. And that we do too. We should be solving and caring for the weak and the needy and the exploited among us. We should do that to bring some peace to the lives of the hurting and the oppressed around us. And that's the way it ought to be. Let's pray. Father, um, we just want to do what you want us to do. And even when we don't know how to do that, we know that your spirit can set up things and point things out and open doors for us that we don't even know are there. And so I ask that you would do that and help us to obey and live lives according to what you want us to do. In the name of Jesus, amen.